Alright guys, welcome back. I'm Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Priogs over Over Coffee. Today's episode was suggested to us by one of our co-residents, Andre, and we'll be talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome. Thanks, Andre. So today's learning objectives are to understand the pathophysiology of the polycystic ovarian syndrome. We'll also learn how to diagnose PCOS through physical exam and imaging. And then lastly, we'll manage PCOS in those that desire pregnancy and those that do not, or discuss really the management differences between those two populations. first question we need to answer, Nick, is what is PCOS? The key is that polycystic ovarian syndrome is a syndrome and not a disease. And the definition of a, of a syndrome is a collection of signs and symptoms associated with a certain health-related cause, while a disease is a pathophysiologic response to internal or external factors. So PCOS really is just a collection of signs and symptoms. So Nick, do you remember the Rotterdam criteria for PCOS? Yeah, I always wondered like Rotterdam criteria. I bet there was just some meeting in Rotterdam or something that came up with this. Or maybe there was a Dr. Rotterdam? So the collection of signs and symptoms, as you said, the syndrome consists of one, hyperandrogenism. So things that manifest like male pattern baldness or male pattern hair growth, acne. And this can also be laboratory findings of hyperandrogenism. Secondly, oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea. And again, we define that as not having periods for greater than three months or having less than nine periods in a single year. And then lastly is kind of where the name comes from is having polycystic ovaries as demonstrated on an ultrasound. Faye, where kind of does this come from? What's the pathophysiology behind PCOS? So I actually went back and I looked at a lot of papers to figure out exactly what the pathophys of this syndrome is. And The answer is we don't really know, Um, and I think that's probably why it's still called a syndrome. So from what I've gathered, for reasons that we don't understand, in people with PCOS, there's basically a chronically elevated LH and insulin resistance. So if you, again, remember back to medical school and think back to all those pathways, remember that LH is going to increase the function of the theca cells in your ovaries. And the theca cells' role is to produce androgens that can go down one of two pathways. So either the androgens can become estrogens or testosterone. So if you have so much production of steroid hormone by the theca cells, you can overwhelm the enzymes that change these androgens to estrogen, and you actually go down a different pathway and produce excess testosterone and DHEF. I'm starting to get flashbacks of that steroid pathway and like all the different sorts of routes you can yes. go. It's kind of coming back to me. We might need to do a different episode. Exactly. On I think we will. So part of this pathophysiology that people ask about is, well, why do you get a ton of small follicles or polycystic ovaries and not the one big one that you're supposed to get every cycle? So the reason you don't have ovulation and a lot of people with PCOS have difficulty um, either getting pregnant or have oligomenorrhea is that you have multiple follicles that form and kind of get stuck in that mid-antral phase and they don't go on to become that one dominant follicle. It's a very long, very complicated pathway. 
excess estrogen will cause the development of a lot of follicles, but excess androgen can actually impair the selection of that dominant follicle. Got it. Okay. The next question is, why do we care about PCOS, right? Yeah, I think, you know, PCOS affects a lot of people and it can cause a lot of serious sequelae. So really with PCOS, I think number one, it it tends to affect a lot of young women. Having that psychological trauma of like hyperandrogenism with this no unusual hair growth can be really disturbing in terms of body image um, and can cause further problems with mood disturbances and depression in these women. Secondly, a thing that does affect a lot of these young women as well is that PCOS can cause infertility. And we'll talk a little bit more about infertility when we go on to talk about desiring pregnancy in this population. Um, But infertility is already recognized as another independent risk factor of this kind of psychological trauma and distress. But even if we move out of young women and towards older women, there are things that come along with the polycystic ovarian syndrome as somebody gets older. There's an increased risk of insulin resistance that's well-documented, leading to metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, uh, non-alcoholic liver disease, sleep apnea, cardiovascular disease. I mean, I feel like I can just keep going on and on and on in terms of all the bad things that really happen with this. And additionally, you think about all of these things, and those are all risk factors for endometrial cancer, that chronic inovulation obesity, diabetes. So even in this population, we end up with another group of women that are going to be at higher risk of other gynecologic problems. So Faye, where do we go? How do we recognize this? That way we can prevent these complications. So this is where we really talk about diagnosing um, PCOS, right? And we already talked about the Rotterdam criteria. So you need two of the three things that we talked about, hyperandrogenism, oligo or amenorrhea, or polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. So really, you can diagnose Mm -hmm. someone with PCOS pretty straightforward just from your history and your physical. And most women will present because they are infertile or because they are oligomenorrheic or amenorrheic. Got it. The one important thing too, Nick, is that we can't miss something else because we just think that it's PCOS. Because a lot of people can present with male pattern hair growth, with oligo or amenorrhea, and they may not necessarily have PCOS. Yeah, we talked a lot about amenorrhea already. And exactly. All we want to rule out all the things that cause amenorrhea. You want to also exclude things like thyroid dysfunction, so looking at your TSH. You want to like check a prolactin level for hypoprolactinemia, mm-hmm. and also uh, looking for things like congenital adrenal hyperplasia, things like 17 OHP. So while people with PCOS will have signs of hyperandrogenism, So things like we talked about male pattern hair growth and things like acne and stuff like that, they won't have virilization. And that would be things like clitoromegaly and and like deepening of the voice. Those things tend not to happen in PCOS. So if you find those things on your physical exam, suspect that something else is going on. Other rare things to rule out would be like an androgen secreting tumor some kind of exogenous androgen. So if they're around people that are using, you know, testosterone creams and stuff like that, Cushing's disease, acromegaly, also primary ovarian failure could be another reason for um, amenorrhea. Well, if you diagnose somebody with PCOS, you want to make sure that they are well cared for and that it's not going to become something worse. So Nick, you already said that people who have PCOS are at high risk for getting things like type 2 diabetes, Um, and also metabolic syndrome. So you also want to make sure that you're getting labs, like checking their glucose, checking their fasting lipids, looking at an A1C to make sure that they don't already have those uh, other issues. I think now we're ready to talk about kind of how we treat this. And I know that earlier we talked about dividing this up into women who want to get pregnant versus women who 
don't want to get pregnant. And let's talk don't want to get pregnant because we've kind of been talking about like what to do to make sure that these people are healthy in general. These patients are healthy. Right, and this is long-term goals because uh, most women with PCOS we, are not going to spend their, you know, the majority of their lives trying to get pregnant. That's just usually a small portion of their lives. So first things first, really, and something that can go for anybody, whether they're trying to get pregnant or not, is to talk about lifestyle modifications and weight loss. Um, there are multiple studies that have shown that reduction in body weight has been associated with decreased symptoms of PCOS, including hirsutism, um, improvement in glucose and lipid levels, decreased risk of cardiovascular events, sleep apnea, and obesity. Um, and again, all of these things towards the long term are going to improve your risk profile for later in life cardiovascular disease or endometrial cancer. Another thing to do with these patients is to get them on combined hormonal contraception. So start the pill. Again, once we get the pill going, we're going to suppress that pituitary LH that's being over-secreted in these patients. And then we're going to kind of put the stop there. They're not going to be making all of that excess androgen because they don't have the excess LH anymore. Birth control pills also increase circulating sex steroid hormone binding globulin or shbg that's a mouthful there um, but once you have that extra protein around it binds up all that extra free testosterone and then you don't have the systemic effects of free testosterone um, and then additionally you get all the nice endometrial benefits it's going to prevent pregnancy but it's also going to allow the endometrial lining to shed on a regular schedule and thus decrease your risk of endometrial cancer what about other stuff because i've definitely seen pcos um, patients, you know, taking things like metformin or spironolactone. Can you talk more about that, Nick? Yeah. So those are kind of, those are all interesting other adjunct treatments, I'd say. You know, metformin, I think, is one that is studied and has been thought of a lot, and it's sort of gone back and forth as, oh, it's the next aspirin versus, oh, it doesn't do anything. But I think a lot of people still will use metformin for the PCOS patient because it's an insulin sensitizing agent. So it's going to decrease your overall insulin resistance, and it can cause, in some studies, it's been shown to cause decreased circulating androgen levels, improve the rate of ovulation in patients who are seeking pregnancy, and improve glucose mm -hmm. tolerance. The other things are anti-androgenic things, so spironolactone fits into this category. The important thing to note is that it's not FDA-approved for this use, and the other thing that's important is that spironolactone is teratogenic, so it can lead to feminization in male fetuses, so don't use this in a pregnant woman. So just as a reminder, spironolactone is a potassium-sparing diuretic, so one of the potential side effects is it can cause hyperkalemia, but it has the other cool effects because it's an anti-mineralocorticoid. It does have some moderate anti-androgenic um, anti effect, both by blocking the receptors and weekly as an inhibitor of 5-alpha reductase, the stuff that leads to male pattern baldness. Now let's move on to women who do want to get pregnant. So I think everything that you said about weight loss and lifestyle modification for women who don't want to get pregnant can also apply to women who do want to get pregnant. Because as we said, even having some weight loss and decreasing obesity will improve your fertility rates. ASRM does say that there should be preconception counseling regarding lifestyle modifications for these women. The other thing that you can do with these patients is that because they're not ovulating, you can give them medications to induce ovulation. So the first one that I always think of is clomiphene, right, which is a serum that has a centrally mm -hmm. um, inhibitory effect where the brain basically thinks that there's not enough um, estrogen around. So it ramps up the production of gonadotropins to increase the estrogen exposure around the ovaries to really get that dominant follicle to form. 
However, recently, randomized controlled trials have shown that letrozole, which is an aromatase inhibitor, is actually associated with increased ovulation rates, increased clinical pregnancy rates, and live birth rates compared with clomiphene. So nowadays, REIs may actually use letrozole before they use clomiphene for women who have PCOS. But just and as a caveat, it isn't FDA approved yet for ovulation induction. Okay, well, we have made our way around the world of PCOS. <laughs> um, why don't we try and sum it up right. here, Faye? So the first thing we talked about is that PCOS is a syndrome, um, and it's based on a collection of signs and symptoms. Namely, to be diagnosed, you need to meet two of the Rotterdam criteria of hyperandrogenism, oligo or amenorrhea, and polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. Remember that when you diagnose PCOS, you want to make sure that it's not anything else. So check all of your other things that look at uh, amenorrhea, particularly the big bad things like thyroid dysfunction, prolactin, tests like 17-OHP to look for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And then also start to look at those things that are going to be important for long-term health, like glucose, fasting, lipid levels, things that you're going to want to talk to your patients about to optimize them for either pregnancy or later in life health. And remember, there is a difference in managing women who don't want to get pregnant versus people who do want to get pregnant. Um, the main thing for both is, of course, weight loss lifestyle modifications. But also for women who don't want to get pregnant, you should think about suppressing that pituitary LH secretion and helping them to shed their endometrial lining on a regular basis. So if they are eligible, starting them on something like a combined hormonal uh, contraception pill, um, and you can also consider other adjunct things like insulin sensitizing agents like metformin or potentially anti-androgens, like spironolactone, if they are having a particularly difficult time with uh, male pattern hair growth. And lastly, to help out your patients who do want to get pregnant, a lot of the challenge here is an ovulation. And so you can use the ovulation induction agents, either clomiphene, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, or SERM, or you can use letrozole. Um, which is an aromatase inhibitor, but remember that letrozole is not FDA approved at this time. All right, so once again, I'm Nick. This is Bay. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. Thanks for listening once again. Um, if you liked what we had to say on this episode, always take a look at us on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a nice little rating. And if you think we missed anything on this episode, email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media and follow us on Twitter at creogsovercoff, spelled creogs over C-O-F-F. One, you can find us on Facebook um, at Creogs Over Coffee, um, and also, of course, our website www.creogsovercoffee.com. And remember, just because you have cysts on your ovaries doesn't mean you have PCOS. <laughs>